You know, uh, we're going to uh, be in Matthew again. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study of the book of Matthew. So I want to encourage you, uh, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, to go ahead and make your way to Matthew chapter 16. You know, as I uh, studied for this week's portion of Scripture, I, I really had every intention and, and thought that we would get through the, the rest of chapter 16. Um, but that's not going to happen. It got, it got a little echoey again. Um, as I was studying, I just kind of kept getting, you know, different things and felt like, you know what, it's going to be too much to bite off in one uh, sitting. So we're going to divide this up, uh, this last part of uh, Matthew chapter 16 into two portions of Scripture. But because we're going to be having uh, a Palm Sunday in our Easter services, we're going to do part, part of it now. And then in a couple weeks from now, we'll finish off chapter 16. So uh, looking forward to uh, what the Lord wants to show us in his word this morning. So we're going to pick up uh, and cover verses 13 through 20 this morning in a message that I've entitled, Jesus and the Church Revealed. And so we're going to see in our portion this morning how Jesus asked a very important question regarding who he is. And he also identifies the church and the foundation upon which the church is built. And so let's read this morning's text and, and pray Uh, just for God's leading through His Word. And I want to ask you just to stand as we read God's Word, just in in honor of it, and uh, also give you an opportunity to shake out those legs one last time before we go and get into the Word. Okay, Matthew chapter 16 continues from where we last left off in verse 13. And it says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Verse 20, then he commanded his disciples they should, that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And just a, um, it's going to be a hearty time this morning. I pray that you would just lead and guide us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be in this place leading and guiding us, that it would be upon each of the, uh, the individuals here giving us discernment to rightly understand your word as we go through it. And Father, I hope that it would not just be an academic study where we kind of go through and make some observations and learn some interesting things, but Father, that we would allow your word to mold and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would look to make application of your word into our life. Lord, knowing that you have uh, not completed that work that you've begun in us just yet, Lord, it's an ongoing work, and we, we want to submit ourselves to you this morning and say, Lord, do, do some molding, do, do some shaping, do some, maybe some chiseling, uh, Father, whatever we may need, we pray that you would uh, do that and uh, just minister to us 
through your word and our time this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word, the blessing that it is, the guide that it is, the light that it is uh, unto our path. And uh, Father, we just pray that you would lead us this morning. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys may have a seat. We're going to take this in two sections, uh, verses 13 through 17. We're going to see it's really the revelation of the person of the king, the revelation of of who Jesus Christ is. In our opening verse this morning, uh, we see that Jesus and his disciples once again are on the move. This time, uh, they find themselves in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Okay. Caesarea Philippi was so named by Philip the Tetrarch. If you guys remember, we've studied a little bit about him, mentioned him uh, previously uh, in our study of looking at the Herod and how it was broken up. Uh, his, uh, Herod broke up his uh, kingdom and his responsibility, area of influence to his different sons, Philip being one of them. Uh, Philip the Tetrarch rebuilt this city, and when he did so, he renamed it after the current Roman emperor, uh, Caesar, and he added Philippi to distinguish it from another Caesarea that was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And so we have there's Caesarea, and then there's Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi could have been, we're not sure, but because we're not told everywhere they went, but based upon what we do know through Scripture, it could have been the northernmost city that Jesus and his disciples visited together. It's located on the southern slope of Mount Hermon at one of the sources uh, of the Jordan River. So uh, above Galilee, even there's another small lake that it would be above that at the foot of a mountain in uh, northeast area there. When they arrived in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus had a very interesting and very important question that he posed to his disciples. Who do men say that I the Son of Man, am. There was a lot of mystery and uncertainty going around regarding exactly who this man from Galilee was. Many people were talking and, and speculation about him was growing. Some seemed certain of who he was, while others had their doubts. Jesus asked the disciples if they knew what others were saying about him. Uh, it's almost as if he was asking, hey, do you know what the, the word on the street is regarding me? You know, what are they saying? And, and I find it interesting that Jesus would ask this. After all, he is God, okay? And, and he knows what others think about him. He, he knows what others are saying about him. And yet he still asks the disciples if they know what the people are saying about him. And I believe that there is a lesson for the disciples And even for us here, as we'll see in just a little bit, as to why he would ask about what others, what men were saying about him. But first, let's look and see what the word out there was about Jesus, regarding Jesus, according to the disciples. They said that some say John the Baptist. And we know specifically that this was the opinion of, of Herod Antipas, uh, amongst others. Okay? You'll recall that as we, we went through chapter 14 of the book of Matthew, that we were told how Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life. If you guys recall, Herod was the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. 
And so uh, when he saw Jesus and what he was doing, he thought, this is John the Baptist come back from life, from the, from the dead. He's come back to life. And, and it's actually an interesting connection to make scene as how really their ministry style was so very different. The ministry style of John the Baptist and, and Jesus uh, was actually noted for being different. In Matthew 11, verses 18 and 19, uh, it describes this truth when it states, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what would make the people think that they were the same person? If their ministry style was so different, if one was very reserved and uh, one was, uh, another one was very open, and what, what would be that connection that would people say, yeah, I think it's John the Baptist? And I believe the major connection between the two that could have made people think that this was the uh, that this was this way was really the uniformity of their message. Okay? Both John the Baptist and Jesus preached a message of repentance. Okay? Their message was pretty much the same exact thing. In Matthew chapter three, verses one and two, it states that in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, "Repent." For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then one chapter later, we hear Jesus using and speaking the same words in Matthew 4, verse 17, where it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so they had the same message. Their, their message, that even though their style was different, their approach to things was different, their message was the exact same message. And so perhaps that's what made people connect the two, John the Baptist and Jesus. Not everyone, though, was sold on the fact that Jesus was John the Baptist, they, you know, as, as Herod was. Okay? Some said Elijah, it tells us. Okay? One thing that was very evident and many benefited from in regards to Jesus' ministry was his ability to perform the miraculous. Okay? And, and perhaps I believe that this is why people suggested that Jesus could be Elijah. If you recall in, uh, through the Old Testament, your readings of Elijah, Elijah was a prophet that was able to perform a, a number of miracles. Okay? He, uh, if you read, you can uh, read about many of those miracles actually in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17 and chapter 18, as well as uh, 2 Kings chapter 1 and chapter 2, talks about a lot of the things that Elijah was able to do. If you'll recall, uh, maybe some older times with just Bible lessons. Thank you, love. She, she knew what, what I needed. Thanks, love. Um, if you recall, Elijah, he was able to command the weather. Uh, he prevented the rain from coming for over three years. He was praying that the uh, rain would not come. And then after three years, he was able to call for it to come, and it came. He called fire down from heaven to consume the altar on Mount Carmel. Also, in addition, he called down fire in Second Kings upon a group of soldiers that were coming up, two different sets of 50 different soldiers that came to approach him. And so he was able to call down fire. He miraculously fed a widow and her son from a seemingly never-ending supply of flour and oil. And later, he even raised that widow's son 
to life from the dead. And so we see similar aspects of Christ in his ministry. He too was able to control the weather. We've seen how he was able to rebuke the wind and the waves and cause the storms to cease. We, uh, he didn't actually call down fire from heaven, but the Spirit descended upon him from heaven. And the voice of the Lord came down from heaven when the Lord declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus not only fed a widow and her son, but multitudes of 5,000 and 4,000 men, not counting the women and children, with just a few loaves of fish. And he too was able to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. And so we see a lot of similarities in the type of miracles that Elijah did and Jesus did. And so perhaps that was the connection. Where people say, well, I think he's Elijah. He's, he's come in, in the spirit of Elijah. Others said that Jesus was perhaps Jeremiah. If you know anything about uh, Jeremiah, you read through the Old Testament book of, uh, with the same t- uh, title, Jeremiah, uh, you'll find that there's connections there to Jesus as well. Uh, perhaps some felt that this was uh, this way, uh, that he was Jeremiah, uh, because of the similar things that Jeremiah and Jesus spoke of. Okay? Both Jeremiah and Jesus spoke of the destruction of the temple. They were called Jeremiah was talking about it in relation to Babylon coming in and destroying it. Jesus t- wasn't really speaking about the temple, but he was speaking about his body. But he both said that the dis- temple would be destroyed. Both spoke uh, also of uh, idolatrous worship. Okay? But most of all, I, I think that the comparison to Jeremiah has to do with their significant emotional tie to the people. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Not because he was a crybaby, but because he, he literally wept over his people and the, the sin that they had involved themselves and was begging and pleading with them, weeping over them that they would repent and come to the Lord. Numerous occasions you see through the, uh, the book of Jeremiah, him weeping over the people. And Jesus too, if you read through the New Testament account, uh, accounts, we see him weeping on a couple of different occasions uh, regarding the ministry that he was doing. We're going to cover one of them in, uh, next week as he comes in and enters uh, Jerusalem. He looked down upon the city and he wept over them. Both Jeremiah and, and Jesus were marked as men who were filled with compassion for the people that they were ministering to. The love they displayed for the people they ministered to set them apart from others. And so perhaps that was the connection. You know, and the compassion that Jesus has. It's, it's like Jeremiah, that, just that emotional guy who's just, you know, his heart pours out for the people. Still, there were others that suggested maybe Jesus was a different prophet other than Elijah or Jeremiah. And I think it's easy to understand why some may view Jesus as one of the other prophets. Uh, For much of what he was doing was foretold by many of the prophets from the Old Testament. As he came and he was fulfilling prophecy, he was fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah and Micah and Zechariah. Daniel and Hosea, they, they all spoke about the coming Messiah. And so as he came and he fulfilled those prophecies, there would be an obvious connection to those prophets. The question of what others say about Jesus 
is still a question that has caused much speculation even today. Just as in the days of our Lord, there are some that would identify Jesus as a prophet. Islam teaches that Jesus was a prophet of God. This is a a requirement, actually, in Islam, is that you would recognize Jesus as a prophet from God, as it is for all prophets named in the Quran. And Jesus is actually mentioned in over 90 verses of the Quran. And so, although Muslims declare Jesus to be a prophet sent by God, they deny his deity. Others, like the Mormon church, they declare that Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan. They believe that he was uh, a created spirit, actually the literal son of God and his goddess wife, that they had relation just like you would have children of your own, that God and had, a, had a goddess wife and they had a child, and that was Jesus. Some, like the Jehovah's Witness, they say that Jesus was an angel, okay? that he was Michael, the archangel, who became a man. Some even try to say that, that Jesus actually never existed. He, he never really even was around. He's just a, a, something that's been made up. Proponents of this viewpoint uh, believe in something called the, the Christ myth theory or the Jesus myth theory. And, and the basically proponents of this group say that Jesus never really existed. He was just made up to get people to follow after someone and something, a, a system. And he never even lived, never even walked the earth. There's another popular view of the identity of Jesus, not one that people realize, but I I see it, and I think a lot of people, we can identify it and readily uh, uh, recognize it, and it's that the identity of Jesus is is simply a name that people use for a God of their own making. They say he's the same Jesus that you and I worship, but he's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's an, an idol created that, that's okay with sin and, and doesn't demand anything, no discipline, no sacrifice, no surrendering, no submission. It, it's just an idol that people believe in that will get them into heaven simply because they call their idol Jesus. They say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, and he's, we got a connection, and we're good, and he's okay with the way I live my life, and, and there's no problems, and, you know, I'm going to be in heaven. Yeah, that, that's an idol. That's not the God that we serve. And it's not the Jesus of the Bible. But there are those that believe that these idols are Jesus. Still others, they, they claim today that, well, Jesus, he was just a, a good moral teacher. You know, he was just a good person. Talked about a lot of good morals. Taught you how to live a good life. Okay? Many people who claim uh, superior intellect will say that Jesus was, was just a good moral teacher, but they'll deny that he was God or that he was able to do uh, the miraculous. How, but if you think about it, this really doesn't make a lot of sense to even come up with this type of notion that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Jesus taught that he was one of the living God and that he and his Father were one. He taught that he was God. And so how can someone say that Jesus was just a good teacher but not God if the very thing he taught was that he was indeed God? If he wasn't God, then that would make him a terrible teacher. It would make him a teacher of lies. And so you can't just say he was a good teacher because that wouldn't make sense. 
Famous Christian author C.S. Lewis said this in response to those that claimed Jesus was just a good moral teacher. It's a little bit long, but I, I want, thought it was important. I wanted to share it to you in the entirety. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something even worse. Then Lewis adds, You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He just doesn't make sense to say that ah, he's just a great moral teacher. As you can see, the the question of who Jesus is will get many different answers. You'll get many different responses depending upon whom you ask. And, And to be honest with you, knowing what everybody else thinks or says about Jesus isn't as important as the next question that Jesus asked his disciples. Because Jesus then asked, but who do you say that I am? Such a simple question. Eight very little words that form the question upon which your and my eternal status rest upon. John Corson, he said, the door to eternity swings upon this very simple question. But who do you say that I am? Herein lies the point, I believe, and the lesson that Jesus, I believe, was trying to teach his disciples and asking them what the other people believed and what other people said about Jesus. And I believe that he wants to teach us and and remind us of the same lesson. And it's this. You see, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what Herod said or, or what the Jews said or what the religious leaders of the day said about who Jesus was. And it doesn't matter what Islam says, or what the Mormons say, or what the Jehovah's Witness say. It doesn't matter what the supposed intellectuals say, or the atheists say. It doesn't matter who grandma says Jesus is, or who your mom, or your dad, or your wife, or your, your, your husband. Okay? It doesn't matter who they say Jesus is. Here's why. Herod is not going to speak for you when you bow your knee before the Lord and confess Him to be be, Jesus Christ to be Lord. Excuse me. Nor will the Jews, nor the religious leaders, nor Mohammed, nor Joseph Smith, nor your spouse, nor any other, you alone will give account for the answer to this question. Nobody can answer this question for you. And so it doesn't matter what they say. It matters 
what you say. It's something that we all must answer on our own. But who do you say that I am? Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni, who is Jesus Christ to you? It's very important that before you leave this place today that you have an answer to that question. And not just any answer, you need the right answer. Peter gives to us the right answer in verse 16 when he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The word Christ, you know, I think maybe we say it so often, we think that it, maybe it's his last name. But that's not his last name. His name's not Jesus Christ. Just like John's last, middle name's not the and last name's not Baptist. Jesus Christ. Christ, uh, is a, it's a title. Okay? In the Greek, it's the word Christos. And in the Hebrew, it speaks of the Messiah. Both Messiah and Christ, they're titles that are translated as the anointed one. By identifying Jesus as the Christ, Peter was saying that Jesus was the anointed one that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. He was anointed to be king of his people as well as the deliverer and savior of his people. And so, acknowledging Jesus as the Christ was acknowledging Jesus as King, or we might say Lord, as well as Savior. Oftentimes, we read of the title of Christ being used together with those very distinctives of Lord and Savior. Paul wrote to Titus, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. And Titus 1.4. Peter exhorted his audience to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 You know, and I've said this before, and and I'll say it again. In previous teachings, I've said this. I, I believe that there are many in the world today that have an incomplete Jesus. They've made up an idol a God of their own making and choosing. And they've called him Jesus, but he's not the Jesus spoken of in the Bible. The Jesus in the Bible is both Lord and Savior. There are a lot of people who, who have made up idols of just, just Jesus the Savior. Okay? They like having a Savior, a, a get-out-of-hell-free card, but they don't like Jesus the Lord. Okay? And, and as I alluded to earlier, lordship, it requires discipline, sacrifice, Surrender, submission. These are things that many people just don't like and they don't want in their life. They're not willing to submit to Jesus as Lord, to live their life according to His Word. And so what do they do? They make up a Jesus. That's just Savior. He's my Jesus Savior and I'm good with Him. And He's really not my Lord because I don't do what He tells me to do. But He gets me out of you know, some jams and I really like Him and He's my God. The problem with this is that Jesus that is only Savior isn't the Jesus of the Bible and it isn't a Jesus that can save you. The correct answer to the question of Jesus' identity is that He is the Christ, the anointed Lord and Savior. Jesus responded to Peter acknowledging that He was correct in His statement and that He was blessed Because flesh and blood did not reveal this truth to him. 
but Jesus' Father who was in heaven did. Peter was blessed because he didn't come up with this answer all by himself. It wasn't something that he gathered all the evidence on and, and he made an intellectual assessment and he, and he came up with this conclusion. Oh, you're, yeah, I've gathered everything up and I've weighed everything out and I've come to it. I understand you're the Christ now. It was not, wasn't like that. He was given the answer by the Father. Okay? Slipped it to him. Okay? He said, he's the Christ. The Father revealed it to him. You know, earlier in our study of the book of Matthew, we came across chapter 11, verse 25, which states, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. The Father hid certain things from the wise and the prudent, the likes of the Pharisees and the scribes, and He had revealed them to babes, like the disciples, like you and me. I believe God still works in the same way today. That He reveals things to us in a supernatural way. 1 Corinthians speaks of hidden wisdom from God from God that has been given to us as believers. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, but God has revealed them, talking about this hidden wisdom, this wisdom from the Lord. God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Hopefully you're able to follow that along. We have it up here for you to read. But God has given to us His Spirit, that the Spirit might reveal to us Special insight into things of the Lord. And I think this is something that is desperately needed in the church today. We need to rely more upon the Spirit of God to reveal to us the things of God. You know, I, I think every time we start talking about the, the, oh, the Holy Spirit and the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does in the life of believers, a lot of people put up their flags. Okay, we, we were very cautious about that. Okay? And I think that because there's been a, a gross misuse and a gross mislabeling of things relating to the Spirit of God that we've become so cautious and so reserved regarding the matters of the Spirit of God that we've actually hindered ourselves from receiving things from the Spirit of God. You know, we need to be more open to what the Spirit of God wants to do in our lives. Revelation or excuse me, uh, Matthew, Matthew 16, verses 18 through 20. We'll go through these. It really is, we looked at the revelation of who Jesus is as, as King, as Lord and Savior. And now we're going to look at the revelation of the church. Verse 18, it says, and I, say, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. 
Jesus is continuing his conversation with Peter, who has just delivered a wonderful truth of God from God. Peter, Peter had just answered the question of who Jesus is, and now uh, Jesus is going to identify who Peter is. Okay? Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, you should know that there's a lot of controversy on the understanding of this verse. The Roman Catholic Church has understood this verse to be explaining how the church will be built, built upon Peter. Okay? And that this is support for the office of the papacy. Pap- the Pope. The papacy. Pa- yeah, the Pope. Okay? Um, and the reason that they feel this verse supports their point of view is based upon the understanding of what Peter's name means. Okay? Peter means rock, and and so when Jesus said, you are Peter, rock, and and on this rock I will build my church, the Catholic Church believed that Jesus was giving to Peter the responsibility of being that foundation of the church, that he was going to be the, that, you know, everything was going to be built upon Peter, okay? But if you do just a, a, a basic study of the Greek, which I am not, but I have some Greek lexicons and dictionaries, and I can look up different words, and it tells me what they all mean. Uh, if you look up some of these words, you realize that the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew was written in Greek, okay? and the words that were written in there, they actually have two very similar words, these words rock. They're very similar, but they're actually two different words in the Greek. Okay? The word Peter is the Greek word petros. Okay? It's the masculine form of the word meaning stone. Petros always means a stone. Okay? Uh, it, it can speak of a, of a larger stone, but it, it speaks of a uh, piece or, or a fragment of a rock, such as a, a man might be able to pick up and throw. That's the kind of size of a rock we're, we're considering, the, this petros. Okay? It's a small rock that one would be able to grab and throw and, and move around. Okay? That's what Peter means. Okay? The word Jesus used for rock when he said, on this rock, I will church, it's a different Greek word. It's actually the Greek word petra. Okay? Petra is a feminine word that means a massive rock or cliff, and it can also be used to speak of bedrock or foundational type rock. Okay, it's a large, not something you're going to grab and throw. And it's, it's a foundation. It's, it's there. It's massive. Okay? And, and so we see that in the distinction between these two words. And that they don't mean the same thing. Jesus wasn't saying, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church, like the Catholic Church supposes. But rather, Jesus was saying, you are, you are small rock. Rock that I can pick up and throw around. Okay? And, and on the massive rock... Formation, that, that bedrock, I will build my church. And so we look at that and we say, well, okay, if Peter is not the rock, the, that bedrock, that foundational rock, then, then who or what is? First and foremost, I want to remind you that the imagery of a rock throughout the Old Testament often always correlated, related to the Lord. Scriptures like Deuteronomy 32.4 say that he is the rock. His work is perfect. Psalm 18.2 says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. Later on in that same chapter at the end there, verse 31, it says, for who is God except the Lord and who is a rock 
except our God. Based purely upon history and and Old Testament beliefs, it would lead us to believe that the rock that the church would be built upon would be God. And, And as we consider the context of the surrounding verses and the magnitude of what Peter just discovered, may I suggest to you that Jesus is referring to Peter's declaration of Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God, as the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. That declaration of the identity of Jesus, that is the bedrock. That's the foundational rock. Okay? And it makes sense to me as you think about it. Okay? Jesus was not referencing Peter as the foundation that Jesus would build his church upon, but rather upon the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that he's uh, the Lord and Savior. After all, the church is built upon and added to when people believe upon Jesus as Christ, the Lord and Savior. Right? If someone believes that, they're added to the church and they're being built up. Also, we know that other scripture, it teaches us that Jesus was the chief cornerstone that the church would be built upon. Okay? And that he was actually rejected by the Jews. Ephesians 2 speaks about how the church is, is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, not just Peter, and that Jesus Christ himself was that chief cornerstone. Without Jesus there, there's no foundation. Without that chief cornerstone, you got nothing. Okay? And, and so to say, you know, oh, Peter is, is, is all-encompassing. He's the foundation. We build upon him. Well, that really doesn't match up with the rest of what Scripture teaches us. That Jesus is that cornerstone. Yes, and, and the prophets and the, and the apostles, they are building that foundation as well, but Jesus is the starting point. Okay, you need Jesus, first and foremost. He is the foundation. It's interesting that he speaks of the church here. This is actually the first mention of the word church in the New Testament. Okay? Here, and here, Jesus reveals to us the church and the foundation that it will be built upon. That is Jesus Christ. He's also going to reveal to us some of the ministry and characteristics of the church. And so let's continue on. Jesus said that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against his church. Hades, it speaks of the place of the dead. A place for departed spirits of the lost. Gates, they speak of defensive structures. Okay? Uh, Things that we use to protect us from outsiders or maybe to keep things on the inside. And we see here that the picture Jesus paints uh, is that his church will not be stopped by death. The gates of Hades, they will not prevail in keeping Jesus from overcoming death. And the gates of Hades will not be able to prevent his church from bringing new spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. Jesus will have victory over Hades and death, and that victory will be shared with his church. And we're going to be celebrating that in a few weeks. Jesus continues speaking to Peter and declares to him that he will give to Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And we might ask, well, what exactly does that mean? Again, this has been misunderstood in the past and has been used to paint some sort of picture that, that Peter sits on the outside of, of heaven uh, and, and sits there at the pearly gates and he's got his keys and when we get up there, he's going to either unlock the door for us and let us in or he's going to say, sorry, you didn't make it. Oftentimes, a lot of uh, artistic paintings and things will be 
have Peter carrying keys with him or, or outside of heaven. And it's that idea that you've got to go through Peter and he gives you the access. Okay? That's not what this is talking about. Okay? The, to think that Peter uh, sits on the outside of heaven's pearly gates with keys and he's given the responsibility to open the gates of heaven to people, we don't see that taught in the Bible anywhere. Okay? It's not biblical. What then? What are these keys? Okay? Keys speak of stewardship and responsibility. Okay? In ancient times, the steward of a wealthy family, especially of the royal household, was given a key. Probably, uh, oftentimes, I was reading, it says it would be a golden one in recognition of his office. And, and, there, and we often do that, too. We have the, the keys of the city, right? You know, we give someone responsibility and acknowledge them. Okay? And so this was something that would happen oftentimes. And there, therefore, the phrase referring to giving a person the key, it naturally grew into an expression of, of raising him to great power and bestowing upon him a, a great responsibility of stewardship. You've been given the keys. You've got to be able to, to do what your master needs you to do at the time he calls you to do it. Okay? Keys, they're, they're used to open things okay? uh, that, are, that are shut or locked. Oftentimes, we use keys to unlock and to open doors. Okay? And so what sort of doors are there in the kingdom of heaven, heaven that need opening? Well, Acts chapter 14 actually speaks of an open door of faith in verse 27. Paul, he referenced a great and effective door that had opened up to him in regards to ministry opportunities in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. And in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul requested that the church pray for him, that God would open to him and the people that he was with, a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. And we see that the doors of the kingdom of heaven, they they speak about opportunities to share the gospel message of faith in Christ to others. And so understanding what the keys were used for allows us to better understand the responsibility that was given to Peter. The Lord gave the keys to the, uh, of the kingdom of heaven to Peter because he would be given the responsibility and the privilege of being the one to open up the doors of faith to the people. We see this in the book of Acts. If you read through the book of Acts in Acts chapter 2, we see that on the day of Pentecost, Peter opened up the door of faith to the Jews and some 3,000 souls were added to the church that day in verse 41 of chapter 2. Later on, in the book of Acts in chapter 10, we see that it was Peter again who came to open yet another door. This door was a, a door of faith to the Gentiles. Peter was sent to the house of a Gentile man named Cornelius, and he preached the gospel to him and all his household. And we're told that the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word in verse 44. And and so we see the responsibility that began uh, with Peter uh, to open the doors of faith to all people uh, was, that's what that was, those keys of the kingdom of heaven. You're given the responsibility. It was Peter who opened that door of faith to the Jews. And then again, he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and all nations. You know, that same responsibility, I believe, has been passed on to us as well. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20 says that we are to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded and commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The responsibility is there for us too. Just like Paul, who wanted God to open to him a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, we too ought to be seeking out opportunities to share the message of Christ with others. What a great opportunity we have before us in this Easter holiday season. A holiday season that is based upon the celebration of the victory that Christ had over death and the gates of Hades. Let's take advantage of this door before us as we see what the Lord and see what the Lord may do. Jesus also told Peter that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The phrase binding and loosing, they were actually familiar uh, terms that were used uh, amongst the Jewish people. Okay? Uh, actually, most notably, it would be used by the rabbis because they often spoke of binding and loosing things And when they spoke about binding and loosing things, they were talking about forbidding or permitting things. If something was was bound, it was uh, forbidden. If something was loosed, it was permitted. And so this was a common saying. Jesus asked the question as you read that, you think, was Jesus given the giving to Peter? The, The power to forbid or permit things on earth and in heaven was... Was Peter given the ability to, to make heaven do our bidding? Like whatever Peter did, that's, that's what's going to happen in heaven. I don't think that's what this is teaching. Okay. Uh, again, a closer look at the Greek helps to clarify this portion of Scripture. The original language does not suggest that whatever Peter did on earth would dictate what would happen in heaven. One translation that I found really helpful in understanding this verse was Young's literal translation. It's not a Bible that I read from a lot because it can actually kind of be really hard to understand because it tries to be so literal uh, to the original language. It doesn't twist it and make it look good in English. And so sometimes you read it and you're like, I don't get it. Uh, But it's a very good uh, translation in regards to literal translation. Okay? Young's literal translation is actually quite helpful, though, when it comes to understanding what's going on here in the latter part of verse 18. It says this, And whatever thou mayest bind upon the earth shall be, having been bound in the heavens. And whatever thou mayest loose upon the earth shall be, having been loosed in the heavens. From this very literal translation, we see that Peter was not given the, the power to dictate what happens in heaven, But rather, Peter was given the responsibility to be binding and loosing things or forbidding and permitting things as it is done in heaven. So it's the idea that however it was already done in heaven, that's what he's going to do. That's his responsibility. It's already bound or already permitted in heaven, and his ministry will line up with that. The responsibility given to Peter was that he would be working in harmony with heaven not dictating things to heaven. Things that were already forbidden or permitted in heaven, well, that would be what Peter would forbid or permit on earth. And this power was not only entrusted into the hands of Peter, but also to the other disciples. Actually, in Matthew 18, verse 18, uh, Jesus repeats this phrase to the rest of the disciples, saying that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Peter and the rest of the disciples, they were given a great responsibility to teach and instruct the church in the ways of the kingdom of heaven. 
And we see that's what they did as we read through our New Testament. Those are the teachings of the apostles and the disciples. I think that, um, that the church... The church needs to be in harmony with the kingdom of heaven as well. Okay, that we need to be doing things that are, are permitted in heaven and, and forbidding things that are forbidden in heaven, that our lives would match up with what things are going on in heaven. Okay, that, that we would be in harmony as well, the way we live our lives. Our final verse this morning states that when he commanded his, then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Jesus, as, we, as we've noted before, was working upon a divine timeline. And although I'm sure he was excited that his disciples were coming around and then the, the Father was revealing things to them, he, he had to ask them to, to keep a lid on it. He said, guys, it's great, but you can't tell anybody just yet. Okay? At the right time, he will give to them the green light to go and to proclaim that message, but it wasn't that day. And so he had to tell them, not to tell anyone, okay? But it's uh, something that we know after Jesus died and rose again and he ascended into heaven, that's when he said, go tell everybody, this is the message, go tell them, okay? Let it out now. And, and we get the privilege of doing that as well. Today we, we uh, are going to partake of communion, okay? It's something that we as a church body do. Uh, the first Sunday of every month, uh, we set aside some time at the end of service to partake of communion. Now, I want to invite you guys uh, to partake of communion here. I know I see some, uh, some guests that are with us, and uh, hopefully you feel uh, led. Uh, it's definitely not a, 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 you have to be part of this church or anything like that in order to take communion. It's, it's are you part of the, the church? Are you part of the body of Christ? And yeah, let's partake of communion together. And so I want to invite you guys to partake in communion together. Uh, really, communion, it's an opportunity to look back upon the work of the cross of Calvary. Hey, when we partake of communion, we identify ourselves with who Jesus is and what he's did for us. Okay? We acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, and we thank him for his sacrifice that he made for us, that gave to us that victory that we spoke of in uh, our lesson today over death and the gates of Hades. And because of the work of the cross and his victory over the grave, we have been added to his church. And we are being built up. The scriptures tell us that we're being built up as a holy temple in the Lord because of what he's done for us. And so we get to take time today to, to remember what he's done for us, to, to worship him, to be thankful for him, and also to, to look forward for, to his coming. And he's going to come back for us as well. And so uh, here's what we'll do today. Uh, we're going to, uh, I'd like to invite the worship team, uh, Travis and Allison, to come back up and uh, lead us in a song of worship. And if the ushers can prepare to distribute the communion elements, I want to ask you guys to do that. And, and so what we'll do today is this, okay? We'll, we'll pass out both the bread and the cup, okay? At, this, at the same time, we'll just, one right after the other as we worship the Lord. Uh, and, and we'll just partake as the Lord leads you. You know, if you're here with your spouse and you want to pray together, uh, I encourage you to do so, or, or just you and the Lord. You know, take some time to pray and, and uh, spend some time with the Lord as we worship Him and uh, just be reminded of what He's done for us, that His body was broken for us. Uh, and that's what the bread represents, uh, that body that was broken for us. And 
that his blood was poured out for us, uh, represented in the, we have some grape juice here this morning, so uh, represented uh, in that is uh, his blood, uh, uh, that is a new covenant that's been given to us, a covenant of grace, and so we're mindful of that as well as we partake of communion. And so as the Lord leads you, uh, as we're worshiping the Lord, go ahead and partake, and then uh, uh, when we finish with this time, I'll come up and then just close this in a word of prayer. All right? All right.